Uh, Life is difficult, isn't it? Linus asks Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown Brown agrees and says his strategy is to only dread one day at a time. God has better advice for us than that. Today we come to the end of our wild ride through Zechariah and these final chapters answer the question, why is life so difficult? I think it's a question we've all asked at one time or another. If God is in charge and he loves me, why isn't life easier? We ask questions like, why have my adult children walked away from God? Why haven't I found a marriage partner? Or why is my marriage so unsatisfying? Why am I the victim of injustice? Why am I surrounded by people but desperately lonely? Why can't we fall pregnant? Why does sin keep defeating me? Why am I chronically sick or unemployed or in pain or burnt out or depressed? If God really is at work in the world, why don't I see it in my life? Where is the abundant life Jesus promised? Zechariah 12 to 14, it's all about the day of the Lord. These are prophecies and promises about a future day when God will act decisively. Now, all the way through these three chapters, there's the phrase, on that day, on that day. It's a regular drumbeat, again and again, 16 times in three chapters, on that day. But as we keep reading, there are so many things that happen on that particular day that it starts to look like a very long day, a day that goes on and on. And in fact, that's the point, because this is not describing a literal 24-hour day, it's describing a period of time. Now that phrase on that day, it's one that was borrowed, that's been borrowed from earlier prophets. As earlier prophets talk about uh, God stepping into history to, to save his people, to defeat his enemies, maybe it's a day of rescue or a day of judgment or a day of military victory. And in these chapters of Zechariah, even the imagery that we read, it's borrowed from God's earlier actions of saving and judging people. We'll see little reminders uh, about the exodus from Egypt or crossing the Red Sea of God fighting for his people as they conquer the promised land. We'll we'll hear little echoes about when Babylon uh, conquered Jerusalem and destroyed it. These are images of the past, but they're used to describe the future. I think that's a really helpful thing to keep in our mind. These are images, using images of the past, to describe the future. So what that means is much of, uh, to help us understand much of the description, we, we need to see it as symbolic or, or metaphor rather than literal. Uh, it may not be a literal city. It may not be a literal uh, suffering, uh, you know, a literal murder or a literal conquering. As we've already seen, most of these descriptions in Zechariah aren't about what God will do in Zechariah's time or immediately after Zechariah. Many of these promises are focused on Jesus and what will happen after Jesus. And so these chapters of Zechariah, they're looking forward 
they're looking a long way forward beyond Zechariah's time. And I think as we think about, well, when will these things happen, there, there, there are three different times that we're thinking about in these chapters. Firstly, this, a promise or a prophecy might be fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, in his life, his death and his resurrection. A really simple one we saw last week was uh, the promise in chapter 9 about the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we thought, oh, OK, that's Jesus uh, just before his crucifixion. Or, or else these promises, these prophecies might be being fulfilled now in the time that we are now living in. Or the third period of time the promise might be pointing towards is that when Jesus returns on judgment day when the new heavens and the new earth begins. So the promises we read this morning, it could point to one of those time periods or two or perhaps even all three of those time periods. So like I said, these three chapters, they answer the question, why is life so difficult? Uh, and it's an answer that we're going to see in three parts. Why is life so difficult? Well, firstly, because we're in a war. Uh, secondly, but God wins. And the third thing that these chapters will tell us is that we will worship him. So why is life so difficult? Because we're in a war, but God wins and we worship him. There's the talk in a summary. You can switch off now, you can leave and you will have caught most of it. But please stay. Uh, in fact, these, these three chapters, that message could be a summary of the message of the whole Bible, really. Uh, the message of the whole Bible is we're in a war, but God is going to win and we will worship him. Now, this is an answer that I think is a lot more comforting and strengthening and encouraging than Charlie Brown's solution. Charlie Brown's solution was, well, just dread one day at a time. God actually wants us not to dread, but to hope and to persevere and to trust him. So, first part of uh, the answer to the question, why is life so difficult? We are in a war, but God will win. Uh, chapter 12 begins, this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Uh, and interestingly, uh, God is described in, in verse 1 as the God who creates everything. That was interesting uh, considering Annalisa's answer that if God made it, he'll keep his promise. That was good, wasn't it? Uh, so this is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And his word is, verse 2, there is a war coming. Now that's the bad news. Verse 2, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Uh, not just the city, but the whole country will be besieged. But then verse 3, the good news, God will look after his people. Uh, we come to the first of our 16 references to on that day. Look at verse 3. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. That's the workplace and safety verse, really. Don't try and move loads that are too heavy for you. You'll injure yourself. So God is going to cause his people to stand firm. The result will be, verse 5, that the leaders will say the people are strong because the Lord Almighty, remember Almighty is armies, the Lord of armies is their God. On, verse, uh, on that day, verse 6, they'll consume their enemies, but they will remain intact. 
Verse 8, on that day. Verse 9, on that day I'll destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. God will win and his enemies will lose. Flip over the page to chapter 14. We we see uh, how the day continues. uh, More description about the war that we are currently in. And once again, in this war there's bad news and there's good news. Chapter 14, verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Now this is devastation for God's people. It sounds a lot like what happened when Babylon attacked Jerusalem, 70 years before Zechariah's time. But this time it's not just Babylon, this is all of the nations are attacking Jerusalem. Now the outcome is also different from when Babylon conquered. Here's the good news, God steps in, he fights for them in a, in a way that's reminding us of when Joshua conquered Canaan, God stepped in to fight. Uh, Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. But he's not the lofty general who who watches from the safety of a distant hill. He steps right into the middle of the battle. When Babylon was conquered, first half were taken to exile and then the rest, the the whole country was taken, the, the whole city was taken. But now half actually escape. Verse 4 and 5 describe God who who comes and stands on the Mount of Olives, right next to Jerusalem, and then he carves out this escape route, this escape tunnel. He doesn't divide a sea like when Israel escaped from Egypt. He he divides a mountain. Now, what's this talking about? Well, I think it's helpful to remember that this is describing a future using images and languages from the past. There's all sorts of reminders of Bible stories that we should, if we know our Old Testament well, we should, we should think of. Uh, this is a metaphor. It's describing a different type of attack uh, to this literal attack on a different sort of Jerusalem. Just like it's a different type of day. This is talking about us. This is talking about the time we now live in and Jerusalem is not a literal city. Jerusalem represents God's people. God's people, the church. We are under attack. We are in a war. The nations represent all those who are against God and his people. Now that picture has been the reality in every age since Jesus. Even if that war wasn't always killing and raping and ransacking, we have been in a war. If you look through the history books, the default position of every society and institution and and government in every age since Jesus, it's been anti-God. Whether it was the Roman government and its pantheon of gods, whether it was paganism or more recently humanism or Islam, whether it was atheistic rationalism, 
or even today's politically correct postmodern cancel culture, all of these cultures have been anti-God. It's certainly the flavour of Australian society at the moment. Uh, I saw a Facebook post in a camping group that I'm part of, people showing photos of their camping setups and where they're camping and different places. And someone posted a beautiful sunset from their campsite and they made the comment about how God was a, a great artist. Well, there were 70 or 80 aggressive comments that came after it, either attacking or making fun of the person. There may be half a dozen of those were either defending the, the, the person making the post or agreeing with them. But that, you know, I was expecting it because that's the culture we're in. You, you put your head up above, above the, the parapet and someone's going to take a shot at you if you're a Christian. That's the culture we live in. Jesus, Jesus warned in Matthew, uh, sorry, John 15, 18, the world will hate you because they hated me first. We are in a war. Now, sure, there are plenty of Christians in other countries who are doing it much tougher than we are. You know, the worst we're getting is ridicule or, you know, name-calling. But yes, we're in a war. We need to work hard to avoid being obnoxious to people. But at the same time, we carry the most explosive, provocative message in the world. We are called to take the message of repenting and returning to God to people who will hate that message. When you tell them that they're a sinner and that they're wrong and they need to return to the God who made them, they don't want to hear that. They don't like it. You will be hated because ultimately people hate the one who's behind that message. They hate God. But it's not just people who hate God. Satan hates God as well. And so he hates us too by association. So Satan will do whatever he can to discourage us, to drag us down, to distract us, to hurt us. Satan uses life's difficulties to tempt us, to, to undermine our confidence in God, to, to test our faith, to destabilise our hope. Why is life so difficult? Because we're in a war. But the great news for us is, of course, that God wins. God wins. Uh, jump back to chapter 12, verse 10, on the first page of your, uh, the, the, the Bible passage that's in your bulletin. Chapter 12, verse 10. Let's think about the type of battle that God is fighting. Because, as usual, his victory strategy is upside down. His victory strategy is upside down and unexpected. We, we saw it last week in Zechariah chapter 9. We met the conquering king who rides a donkey who's humble, who needs to be saved, who spills his own blood to make a covenant that frees people. That, that seems upside down to us. But here's more of the same unexpected strategy. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, 
as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Haddon Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. God is promising to pour out his spirit so that his people will seek grace. That's the word for supplication. And then they will receive grace. Why will they seek grace? Why will they mourn? Because they've pierced God himself. They've pierced. It's the word for stabbing with a sword. In some way, they've actually killed God himself. And their grieving will be like losing a firstborn son. Or it'll be like the weeping on the plain of Megiddo, which was where King Josiah was killed in battle. Now all that, it must have been puzzling for the, for the Jews of Zechariah's time. How, how can we both kill God and kill a, a person? How do those two things go together? But for those of us this side of Jesus who, who know that Jesus is God and man, it's, it's all so clear. John's Gospel makes the connection obvious for us. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus is on the cross and he, he calls out, it is finished or completed, and then he bows his head and we read he gives up his spirit. Now that could simply mean that he dies, which, which he certainly does die, but these words could also be tra- uh, translated, he, he gives out the spirit. He, he, he dispenses the spirit. Now, if that's what John's thinking of, then he's thinking of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where, where God pours out his spirit on his people, a spirit of grace and supplication. And, and it happened a little over a month later after Jesus died and was raised back to life at, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples like tongues of fire. And then John chapter 19 goes on to describe after Jesus dies how the soldiers come and they break the legs of the other two criminals so that they will die more quickly. But they don't break Jesus' legs, verse 30, because he was already dead, uh, verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers, instead of breaking his legs, they, they pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And another scripture says they will look on the one they have pierced. Jesus, God's firstborn son, the one who comes in the line of King David, is pierced in death. Now it seems like defeat that a pierced one would, would somehow uh, it seems like he would uh, defeat rather than victory until we recognise that Isaiah prophesied about a servant who would be pierced uh, who would be pierced for our transgressions. Uh, Isaiah 53 verse 5 But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. A sacrifice who dies for sin, one who dies in place of many to bring peace. That's what the piercing was for. Now, it's not a mistake. It's not God correcting an oversight. This is actually God's plan that his, uh, that his son would be pierced. Back in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, God commands his sword, the sword that does the piercing. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd. This is God's will that his son, his shepherd, his king would be killed, pierced. Because defeat and death for God's king means victory and life for God's people. Death for sin means for, brings forgiveness for sin. Now Zechariah also describes uh, that process of, of forgiveness for sin coming through uh, God's king who's pierced. Uh, have a look at chapter 13 verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened. Just like a spirit that's been poured out, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do what? To cleanse them from sin and impurity. Jesus, our humble donkey-riding king, gives his life, is pierced for our transgressions. Why? So that God could... Open a fountain so that God could wash us clean and pour out a fountain of his spirit of grace and forgiveness. Now I think John, in John's Gospel, is actually hinting at that imagery of a fountain that's opened when he describes the blood and water that, that flow from Jesus' side. Pierced so that a fountain might be poured out. God's spirit flows out so that we might be forgiven. But it doesn't just cleanse us from our sin through forgiving us. He cleanses us from the effects of sin. Chapters 13, uh, verse 2 and onwards, it describes how uh, idols will be banned from the whole land. And then verses 3 to 6 describe how false prophets will be removed. And that... Um, humorous description about the prophet who pretends he's the false prophet who pretends he's not a, a prophet and where did he get these wounds from well that was just a friend gave them to me anyway, that's hilarious but I, I think don't get bogged down on the small detail it's saying god's spirit is going to change his people now i think that's what god is at work doing now between when jesus sent his holy spirit until he comes back his holy spirit is at work in us shaping us, making us like Jesus. In the age of the Christian church, God's Spirit is removing our old nature, giving us a new nature. God's Spirit is pruning us and shaping us and disciplining us, removing those idols that we used to trust in and teaching us to depend on, on God. Now that process is not pleasant, it produces something good, but the Christian life is not about um, 
everything going smoothly. I think all of us can attest to that. Why? Because we're in a war. Uh, verse 7 again, chapter 13, strike the shepherd and what will happen? The sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's us. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. Now that scattering of sheep happened around the time of Jesus' death. Jesus recognised that fulfilment. Mark 14, verse 27, uh, at the end of the Last Supper, he said to his disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, Jesus knows that when the persecution comes on him, that his disciples will be scared and will flee. And for a while they did. They hid in fear. Until he poured out his spirit of grace, promised in Zechariah, and God's spirit gives them courage and guidance and words to say, and the church was born. And as the church grew down through the centuries, Christians continued to show that same spirit-powered courage, even in the war that God's people, uh, uh, even as the war against God's people developed. And the reality is many Christians have been martyred, have died uh, in that time from the Holy Spirit coming until Jesus returns. There are many more to come. But notice verse 9, in the midst of that war, what happens to the remaining one-third? Why is life so difficult? Verse 9 of chapter 13, this third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say... They are my people. They are my people and they will say, the Lord is our God. That's life now. God brings us into fire. That might sound difficult for you to accept that a God who loves you would bring you into fire. But he does it to purify you. He achieved his victorious purposes through a pierced and crucified Messiah. Why, why are we surprised that he would achieve his purposes for us through us suffering? We shouldn't be surprised. If he did it for Jesus, he'll, he will do it for us. God uses the fire of hatred and persecution and, and just suffering in general to refine us. Just like purifying metal ore when our life falls apart, we have to turn to God, don't we? Because we realise that we're helpless. And so fire burns away all of the idols and the false hopes that we've been trusting. Uh, 1 Peter 1 describes uh, that same language uh, as it talks about the fire of suffering fire that removes the rubbish and it leaves behind what is true and pure and eternal. Uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 6. In this, your future inheritance, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, Peter's saying here that trials burn away our, our independence, our pride, our pretension. Trials leave behind a humility and a dependence and a hope. You notice the end goal there at the end of that quote from 1 Peter? That when Jesus Christ is revealed, that he will receive praise, glory and honour. I I think that's praise, glory and honour from us because we've made it to the end. But also praise, glory and honour because of us. That people will look at our lives and say, oh, how good is God? He's faithful. Look at how David made it to the end when he was up against so much. Praise, glory and honour to Jesus. Now, that's the third part of the answer to the question of why life is so difficult. Because life's a war, but God will win and we will worship him. The rest of chapter 14 goes on to describe what that eternity of worship will be like. And it it borrows images from Genesis and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And they're images that will be borrowed again in the book of Revelation. So what we see after the war, chapter 14, verse 6. On that day, there it is again. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique or it'll be a first day. Without daytime or night time, a day known to the Lord, when evening comes, there will be light. Sound familiar? This is like the first day of creation, isn't it? Except it's not a first day of creation, it's a first day of a recreation, of of a new creation. And God creates light. We go on to read in verse 8 about a river of life that will flow from Jerusalem and, and we're reminded about Genesis 2 where rivers flowed from the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22 describe a a river that flows from Jerusalem. And here's the best bit, verse 9. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Not that he's not already king. Like God is already king, isn't he? But on that day everyone will recognise it. All of the other gods will be seen for what they really are. They'll be seen as being false and everyone will say, yes, there is only one God. And verse 11, Jerusalem, who, who repre- that, which represents God's people, Jerusalem will be secure, never again to be destroyed. Verses 12 to 15, that's not the case for God's enemies, though. After all, this is a war and God wins which means his enemies will lose. There is some pretty tough language in verses 12 to 15. But once again, it's borrowing imagery from Isaiah, where God defeats the attacking Assyrians with a plague, and from Exodus, when he brought plagues on the Egyptians. But, But here, this will be plagues that come on God's enemies at the end, who refuse to accept him. 
Now, the point of those verses is that God's judgment is coming and it's sure. God has judged and punished before, so he will do it again. And so these are verses that it's right for us to warn people with. Be on the right side of God. God is coming. But there's also mercy and worship. From verse 16, some of the nations join with God's people. They move from being enemies to being friends. Verse 16, then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was the one feast where foreigners were welcome. Now this will be fulfilled when Jesus returns, when the new heavens and the new earth begin, when every tribe and language and nation will be worshipping God, worshipping his King, his Son, our Good Shepherd, Jesus. It will be a time of enjoying, rejoicing in God's grace and his goodness and his love. But just the end of Zechariah 14, I think, gives us a hint that it's not going to be like one long, eternally long church worship service. I don't know about you. Is it wrong to think that might be a little boring? But I I think we've got the image that it's going to be much better than that. Uh, Verses 20 and 21 talk about how all of life will be holy. All of life will be worshipped to God. All of life will be lived with God in gratitude and intimacy and fulfilment of him. The words holy to the Lord will be written on, anything, on everything. It'll be written on your cooking pots. It'll be written on the bells of the, of the animals. Whatever you do is, is holy and set apart for God. Whether it's work or feast or your singing or your recreation, everything is worship. That is our future. That's something wonderful for us to hope for as we live through the trials that our lives consist of now. But there's also a sense in which that picture is being fulfilled now. At least a shadow of that picture, a foretaste here in our life together as church. These verses are a target for us to aim for now. They're a picture for us to aspire to, a model for us to imitate. Worshipping God, united in all of our lives, lived in gratitude to him. Yes, life now is difficult because we're in a war. But God will win and we will worship him forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Uh, It's been a wild ride through Zechariah and and much of the detail, I guess, uh, we don't get. But we thank you for this simple message that Zechariah finishes with. Yes, we're in a war, but you will win and we will worship you. Help us to hold on to these truths. Uh, We pray that as you are shaping and purifying and cleansing us and making us more like Jesus that we might be able to do that with our eyes fixed on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.